You know, singing a song, Word of God Speak, would be very intimidating getting up afterwards, except for I'm using the Word of God, so therefore there's no intimidation. Uh, if I was trying to use my own words, you know, then, then we'd be in trouble. And uh, so that was a, a precious prayer for me to be even able to sing before getting up here because that's what I want, is I want the Word of God to speak to us all today, myself included. And so at this time, I'm going to ask that ushers would provide Bibles. If you do not have one, we're going to be in them today, and uh, as we always are. So we're in the midst of a series called Post Tenebrous Lux, which means after darkness light in Latin. And that was a phrase that became the motto of the church during the Reformation 500 years ago, October 31st, 1517, when Luther posted the 95 Theses on the door of that church all those years ago in Wittenberg. And it became a rallying cry because after several centuries of the scriptures being exclusively taught in Latin and also the scriptures being published in Latin exclusively, the church had become very ignorant and naive to the scriptures that, are, that were very accessible to the priesthood because the priests knew and studied Latin. But it was not the common language of the people. And so imagine several hundred years of ignorance to the scriptures. Yet at some point in Luther's life, the scriptures that he was able to read and the scriptures he was able to understand and teach began to impact him as he considered what they said in spite of the paradigm that maybe he had been schooled in. And as a result, he realized what was happening within him was elusive for those that he taught because they did not know what he spoke and they could not read what he was reading. As a result, he became passionate as part of the movement that had begun to see that those scriptures could be accessible in the hands of people. Well, why? Why was that so important? It's because obviously something in him was being provoked about this need. Because he was finding that his life was being changed by what he read and what he was able to understand from God himself. So yes, after he was basically arrested, or I should say uh, uh, set aside and, and was holed up in, in a monastery, he would then translated the scriptures into German, because that's his context. So the German people then could have the German words of God. Now since that point in time, you and I have become very, what should I say, used to the idea of having scriptures in our hands. So I took a little bit of account. In my office, I have more than a dozen Bibles, multiple translations. I brought three of them up here with me in addition to the one I usually use here. I have a New Living Translation. I have the ESV, the English Standard Version. I have the New American Standard Bible. And then I also have the NIV that I teach out of regularly. You will also find in my office, you'll find the King James Version. You'll find a Hebrew version and translation that, that was created uh, and was gifted to me. 
And then uh, you'll find some other translations like RSV and, and New RSV and then Amplified Bible, the Old Living Bible that some of you grew up on in the Jesus uh, movement of the time. And so, uh, or even you could find if you go into other archives, the Bible the way that some of you uh, had back in the day. And, and I know one of the, the women that's on the picture of the way Bible, which we talked about that a couple years ago. So just in my own, uh, should I say, hands, I have that many Bibles. That does not count the Bibles I have in my home. I have personally three Bibles at home that I would say are mine. Then my children each have their own Bibles, and I think both of them have multiple Bibles, at least two each. And then you get into the amount of Bibles my wife has. She has uh, two or three. I would imagine that she, she does have a Bible. Uh, <laughs> but she has two or three of her own, and they're, they're in places where I know if I wanted to find them, I could. And so just in my household alone, we have 25 plus Bibles that between myself and then what's at home and what my family has, that's how many we have. That's called biblical gluttony. <laughs> we have a lot and that's because it matters a lot to us. Now in my case, I have several NIVs because over time I wear them out. That's been uh, the NIV 84 tra uh, version of it. I had multiples that I'd used over the years and wore them out and duct tape quit working. I remember the father, the, my, well, my father, he had a New American Standard Bible he'd used for years and he had marked it all up and the pages were not staying together and then he ended up moving on to another Bible and, and you end up replacing. So over time Time, things happen and we keep adding to it. But when you have that kind of accessibility to the scriptures, it's hard to appreciate what you have because it's very simple and easy for us. In fact, the Bibles we just handed out, if you do not own one and you took one of those, you can take that home as a gift from us. That is free to you. That's how accessible it's become. But yet, 500 years ago, that was unheard of. The top five selling English translations are the NIV, the King James, the New Living, and this is in order, by the way, and New King James, and the ESV. There are now translations of the Bible and multiple translations of the Bible in over 2,000 languages. Now, there's Actually, the Bible's been printed in over 3,000 languages. But you can get multiple translations in over 2,000 of those languages. So that's rather significant. In fact, there are organizations today like Wycliffe that their goal is to print and translate into every known language of the world. Now, that's a pretty significant challenge because there's some very small people groups out there that, that exist and, and they do not have the scriptures in their tongue. And so the goal is that by, I think that they feel like that we'll get close by 2030 that we'll have the scriptures in every known tongue. You can go out into our lobby, look on the wall, and you'll see the, this list of, of several thousand unreached, unengaged people groups in the world. Most of those do not have the Bible in their tongue. Jesus said that he would return when, this, when the good news of himself had been received in all the peoples of the world. And so we believe that if we can get this, this, the, the scriptures into the hands of people and they can hear the good news of Jesus Christ, then his return will be that much more imminent. And so we're passionate about seeing the scriptures in the hands of the people so they can hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. 
But in our society, it's not as much of a sense of urgency, is it? Because, again, it's so accessible. In fact, in, in, it is found that in the Western culture, there are 50 Bibles sold each minute globally. So, 50 Bibles sold each minute globally. And in America alone, 168,000 Bibles are distributed every day in our country. 168,000 distributed each day in America. Which is why we have 25, or I do. You guys pale in comparison, I'm sure. Some of you have the thickest Bibles in the world. Uh, Joel and I both have very, very old Bibles. They're like two and three hundred years old, and they're about like this thick. And some of you have that as the family Bible, and it has your entire family tree on the inside of it. But nonetheless, we all have Bibles and multiples of them, and there are 168,000 each day distributed in this country. Amazing. Now, what we, you may not know is that the Bibles that you and I use every day that has chapter and verse— those chapters were not added until 1238 by Cardinal Hugo de Escaro. Uh, and, those verses, and then the verses were added in 1551 by Roberta Stephanus. So up until that time, you had the letters as complete. So imagine if you're trying, you're referencing one of the letters, and before 1231, you wouldn't have had chapters. And then uh, before 1551, you at least had chapters, but some of those chapters are rather long. And so finding the exact spot within that chapter became a challenge. So then they added verses. And so since 1551, again, around the time of Luther, they started adding verses so that we could now more easily find things in Scripture. Here's another interesting fact about our Scriptures that we have in our, our hands. If you were to start in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and complete in Revelation, the final chapters of Revelation. If you were to read it from beginning to end, nonstop, aloud, it would take you 70 hours. So if you were to read nonstop, aloud, the scriptures, it would take you 70 hours. So we're going to begin that right now. You are not allowed to leave. We'll be done. Let's see, what does that put us into Tuesday? So uh, hopefully you didn't have any plans. But 70 hours to read this Bible front to back aloud. So why the big deal? How is it that obviously you can't keep printing scriptures by the, the amounts that they are unless people are taking them. So there is a hunger for these scriptures in the hands of people. Why? What makes it so unique as compared to any other book that has ever been written. Because quite frankly, it is the number one selling book in the history of the world. And there is no close second. This is significant. So why? Why this book as compared to any others? What makes it so life-giving that it could cause that kind of movement? That it would be selling in the thousands each day? A passage comes to mind in the book of Psalms. It's Psalm 119, verse 105, and it says this. Thy word, and I'm speaking in King James, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. 
Now, if I did not have a tablet up here, I would not be able to read anything without the help of this light. Nor could you read anything unless you had a lamp above you that would help you see. What does a lamp provide? A lamp provides the present. It tells you where you are in this moment. It tells you what you need to see to know where you're standing. It helps me be able to read under the light. It could be the darkest of dark nights, but if I have a lamp, I could read. If I have a lamp, I could see that the edge of the stage is right here. If I did not have that lamp, I would be staying in one spot because I would not know where I was. But with the lamp, I can see what I need to see in this present. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. It lets me know where I stand. It lets me know what's around me. It lets me know what I need to know to feel safe and secure. But it does not necessarily tell me where I'm going. But the word of God does. It is a lamp unto the feet. It lets you know the present. It lets you know where you're at in that moment. But it also lets you know where you're going. It lights the path. And you can turn the lights back on. It lights the path. It tells us where we're going. So the word of God is complete in the sense that it not only illuminates the present to know how to stand and to know how secure you are. And to know where, where maybe the dangers might be right around you. But it also tells you what lies ahead and where you are going. What other book in the history of mankind could you say that about? Where it illuminates where you stand now, but it also gives a light to the path that you need to take for where you're going. No other book that I'm aware of in the world can do both functions. Sometimes books help us see what is forward, but rarely do they really help you see where you're at. Many books tell you where you're at, but they often don't give you any light to where you're going. But when you start making the author the creator of the universe, where he is writing down for you where you stand now, where you are at, what the dangers lie right around you. And it also then points a path by which you can go. If you know that that's coming from God, then of course, put that book in my hands. We had shared at the beginning of this entire series back at the end of October, we shared this passage found in John 1. And I want to turn there. So John chapter 1, and I want to point out that if you did not have the Bible, you wouldn't know the history of mankind. If you did not have the Bible, you wouldn't have the history of God. So with the history of God and the history of mankind, we know that God, the creator of the universe, created mankind perfectly. There was no error. There was no sin. It was perfect. They had full access to God. They could see God physically. They could be near God physically. They could use the five senses and experience God. It was perfect. But if we did not have scriptures, we wouldn't know the fact that that, that relationship between God and man was so important to God that he created us with this will to be able to respond to him relationally and, have a, and, and be able to have a relationship for all and, to, and into the future. We wouldn't know that that was upon the heart of God except for you have that in Scripture. But then you consider that 
from that scripture, we hear about that Adam and Eve fell. They sinned. And therefore, what was created perfectly became permanently broken. You and I were born with a sinful state. Nobody here was born perfectly. If any of us were born perfectly, then there would be books written about you, just like there was about Jesus. But none of us are. We're all fallen creatures. And we know that again from Scripture, and we've taught that over the last few weeks. But then here's a problem. If God created things to be a certain way back in Genesis, and it was broken and, and if you will, and messed up by Adam and Eve, then how do we know what the original intent is as to what God would ever want of us or expect of us? Well, that's where the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John become so important. Because what are those four books written about? Who's the main character in those four books? Jesus Christ. And if you didn't have those four books, then you wouldn't know the template of God for what good living is all about. Jesus became literally the template, the model for what life was meant to be in the very beginning. And so you can go and study the life and teachings of Jesus Christ in those four books and discover the intent that God had had from the beginning. And now is being provided by means of grace in Christ alone. So what I want us to do is to read how that is so in John 1, 1 through verse 5. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus becomes the living testament, the living model, the living template of what life was to be. And, and it literally is the very substance of God is his life. You can't find anything in the life of Christ that is not outside the bounds of the character of God, the intent of God, the will of God. It was the full proclamation of God's heart. And as a result, in verse 3, we have the source. He becomes the source of truth. Jesus is the source of truth. To know whatever falsehoods might have existed over time about who God is and what does he desire, that was put to rest by the work and living example of Jesus Christ. And as a result, being the living word of God, he became the light of the world. And that light then exposes all that is not of God. So, in the same way, if we were to darken the lights out again, we wouldn't be able to see what's in the room. But as soon as you turn on a single light, you begin to see shapes. You can begin to see what is there. And the light then exposes the truth of the room. God is the same way through Jesus Christ. He becomes the light of God. That whenever people get around Jesus or they, or they bring their life and they compare their lives to Jesus, they begin to see the standard of God and the standard of man revealed clearly. And one is much higher than the other. And that being the standard of God. But again, this is the word. You would not know this, this standard. You wouldn't even know the life of Christ if we did not have the written word. 
Paul, who is a former Pharisee, spent his entire life preparing for being a teacher to Israel, on knowing the scriptures, knowing them, not only the scriptures themselves, but knowing all the history with Israel so that he could be an effective teacher and leader of Israel. He himself had basically gone awry in some of that teaching when he was letting his own passion stand in the way of seeing the reality of the truth of Jesus Christ. Paul went on to persecute the church, killing people because they claimed that Jesus was the Messiah that the scriptures had spoken of. Instead of researching to find out if the life of Jesus matches the life of the Messiah that was being prophesied about in the Old Testament. If he had done that, he would have seen that Jesus is truly the Messiah. But out of fear and out of disdain, he chose to reject that and not let the scriptures illuminate what was right there before him. But then Paul, realizing that, that he, he, had, he was in error as soon as he came face to face with Jesus on this road to Damascus, he realized that the light had exposed the darkness of his pursuit. He had been killing people in the name of Yahweh, killing them because they had claimed Yahweh's son as Lord. So imagine the horror of Paul when the light that came to him on that road was Jesus saying, Paul, why do you persecute me? The living word was right before him and exposed the darkness of Paul's heart. He'd become prideful in his Phariseeism. He'd become prideful in his zeal. And now he was exposed for all the anger and pride. It is now Paul that's writing what we're going to read next. I want us to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, you have Paul's final letter going to Timothy. Paul is preparing for his end. I mean, he has been beaten multiple times. He's been shipwrecked multiple times. He's been stoned multiple times. He had been uh, accused of falsehood multiple times. He was now on trial for his life. And he's preparing, because he knew his end was coming, preparing for the leadership of the church beyond his life. His disciple that he had poured his life into, he now writes a letter, and that disciple is Timothy. Now I'm going to use, since uh, I come from a child of the 70s and 80s, I'm going to use a little bit of terminology here that you would recognize from the movie Star Wars. Timothy was the Padawan to Paul. And as a Padawan to Paul, he wants to make sure that he has all that he needs, all that he needs to be able to continue to teach the church, lead the church, and to stay whole between him and God. Because Paul had been brought through the ringer. He had been uh, refined by the refiner's fire and made into this leader that God used powerfully to grow the church. But now his time was coming to end. Who's going to be that? And he looks to Timothy and he prepares him for this duty that lies ahead. And so what does he say to Timothy in chapter 3, verses 14 through 17? He says, but as for you, Timothy... Continue in what you have learned and what have become convinced of because you know those from whom you have learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 
all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Amen. So the Word makes you wise for salvation. That was the first thing he starts with Timothy. Again, you're passing on to this Padawan. You're passing on to the future leader of the church. He says to Timothy, the word is what makes you wise to salvation. Now that's an interesting phrase because wise to salvation. How is that so? Again, as I shared earlier, if you did not have the word of God, would you know and understand the definition of sin? Without the word, how would you know what falls short of the glory of God? You wouldn't. You need the word of God to expose that which is sin. And then you, then you have this idea that it's like, okay, what is salvation then? How can salvation come? If you don't have the word, then you could possibly teach the salvation or becoming right with God and, and being able to be saved by God that you could do so by paying enough, by working hard enough, by schmoozing God enough or making sure that your righteous deeds were allowed enough that God could hear. If you didn't have the word of God, you'd believe that. And that's exactly what was happening in the time of Luther is that people did not have the word of God and so they bought into doctrine and teaching that said, if you pay enough and you do enough, you can find righteousness between you and God. But what does he say here? He says, the, it's the scripture that will help you become wise to salvation. Because as we've taught over the last several weeks, it's justification by faith alone in the work of Jesus Christ, which is a work of grace on our behalf. It's not something we can do at all to save ourselves. It is purely a work of God. And so you have here, it makes you wise for salvation. That word brings that upon us. And then he says, just to make sure that you don't belittle the word of God, know that these words were breathed by God. Now, I don't know if you've ever been impacted by a book. Forget the Bible for a moment. A book that's really impacted you that's not the Bible. And you could say, you know what? It was a, it was a game changer for me. And then that book... You, find, you get the opportunity to meet the author of the book. Now, this has happened to me before, where a book that was profound, uh, that, that, uh, that had really impacted me, that I had read, and I got the opportunity to meet this author and to be able to sit in a, in a small office with this author, I could literally smell what cologne he wore. I could smell his breath. I could sit in the room. I could hear his voice, and I could see his physical body, uh, you know, communications and so on. It just made everything that I'd read that much more vibrant. The scriptures were breathed by God. They were breathed by God. And they come from his very heart through his own lungs into us. And so if something comes from the very breath of the creator of the universe, would you not consider what is spoken and what is written from what was spoken, would you not consider that pure treasure? Hence, why people gravitate as they hear the word of God. They're like, it draws them in. It's different from any other book. That's because its author is different from any other author. It comes from the author who created you and I. 
So he's speaking into his Timothy and saying, Timothy, listen, this book, it will, the Bible, the Holy Scriptures will make you wise for salvation, but it will also, it will also come from the heart of God so that you know what's at the very heartbeat of God. And then the word also provides, and this may be one of the most important statements I say throughout this entire sermon, but the word also provides the facts and the manner by which we are shaped by each other. Carefully chosen words here. I want to say it again. The word provides the facts and the manner by which we are shaped by each other. I have people that I interact with that speak rather boldly into my life. Sometimes unwanted. It just happens. But when you get close to people, they will share. And often, because it is rooted in the Word of God, I can tell I need to just shut up and listen and receive. And, and so I have had people rebuke me. I've had people uh, teach me. I've had people correct me. I have people that have trained me into the ways of the Lord. And being a speaker and communicator before a church makes me subjected to more than usual. Correction comes often. And that's okay. Because if it's rooted in the Word of God, there is life found in that. And so what is important to understand is that what he's saying here to Timothy is that, yes, the Word of God is by which we teach. It is what we correct with. It is what we rebuke with. It is what helps us know how to interact. And it is a two-way street between believers that we receive from God himself his breath and we use it to help each other move forward so that we know the path that we're to take. Here's the problem. It is said that the scripture is a two-edged sword, is it not? And a sword yielded inappropriately can merely maim and cut, not constructively. And there are people that will take the word of God, they will correct they will rebuke, they will teach, but they do so not by the spirit that this book teaches. And as a result, it wounds, it maims, it blinds, and it hinders. When the teaching is there, we need to receive the teaching by what is there that is fact and truth. But we also are taught the spirit by which we are to do it. In fact, Peter says this, and Paul also says this, that it's to be with gentleness and respect that we communicate the truths of Scripture. Gentleness and respect. So scripture was at the core of how Paul was preparing Timothy to become that next leader. Listen, it will make you wise for salvation. It helps people understand where their need is for God and where their standing is without God. It is also that word then that comes from the breath of God so we can know his heart. And it's that word that guides us on what the truth is and how to communicate it. And last of all, he says in verse 17, this word was there so that we can be equipped to do all the works of God that are good. Now, this is not talking about salvation. We've already addressed that. Salvation is not by works. No man can boast. But those who are in Christ want to then become more like Christ. Again, he's that template of what good living is all about. So we become more like Christ. And so in order to become more like Christ, we have to have the word that it enlightens us to that life. And so when you have that word, 
You're able to know then how to live a godly and good life that, that begins to provide light and life to others around you. So we have here where Paul is speaking into Timothy saying, the word is the tool by how God shapes all of us. But he also says to, to, to Timothy that the word is the protective guard for you as a teacher and you as a learner. I want you to turn back to 1 Timothy, just a couple pages back in your Bibles. So 1 Timothy chapter uh, 4. So again, in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, he's talking about the word of God being the primary tool that, that we use to, to be able to minister to one another. But then he says in, in the previous letter to Timothy, it's, it's also this guard. It's our protection for us as teachers and learners. So verse 13 of chapter 4, until I come, Timothy, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through the prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So again, Paul's charging Timothy. He's about to become the primary, one of the primary leaders of the church. So what do you say to somebody who's about to become a spiritual leader to a broader church? Well, he says, as we saw in his second letter, it's like the word of God is preeminent. It, it's the most important thing. It will equip you to know how to do the Lord's work. It will help you know what God is thinking and what God is feeling. It helps us know all of that. But he says here, a warning he says that, that, that it is in scriptures that you will have the parameters for how you lead. So it says again in verse 13, Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to its preaching, and to its teaching. So the commitment to a church in order to help the church become what God intends the church to be, the devotion is to the public reading and teaching and proclamation of the word. Not my edicts, not my thoughts, not the things that were important to me. No, it was that the scriptures are to be preeminent. That's what we read. Luther said in the number 54th theses that he had, he said this in 54, it says, injury is done to the word of God when in the same sermon, an, an equal or larger amount of time is devoted to the indulgences rather than to the Lord. I could, re, I could say that statement in another way, but let me read it one more time and then I'll, I'll expound upon it. Injury is done to the word of God when in the same sermon, an equal or larger amount of time is devoted to indulgences rather than to the word. So take it that injury could be done to the word of God if in this sermon I spend more time telling stories that make you laugh. Telling stories about society and how bad it is. Or saying other things that, than to have central to the sermon itself, the word of God. 
You see, in the time of when Luther wrote that, again, they were spending a lot of time talking about how to raise money for the church. Isn't it interesting that we're teaching this during a time we're raising money for the church? But I hope you understand that if you were to collect all the time we've talked about that over the last few weeks, it would not even amount to the amount of time I'm spending teaching from the Scripture in one sermon. I know some of you might feel like you've spoken a lot. It's important to keep communicating the things that are a part of the church. But it is not the preeminent core value of what we're doing here this morning. We will have spent 75 minutes doing other, five minutes talking about the future of the church with the building expansion. If it became more about raising the money from out of you, then you would have every right to say you have done injury to the word of God when you have made the sermon more about creating space, expecting harvest, and not saying that in terms of people, but in terms of building. So therefore, you've done injury to the word of God. He's saying to Timothy here, listen, be devoted to the teaching of Scripture. Be devoted to its public reading. And as a result, people's lives will be changed. I like to look at it this way in verse 16 where it says, uh, persevere uh, in this and watching your life and doctrine closely. And, and, I, and I kind of liken it to this. The Word of God becomes that lens by which we can see the truth of our spiritual condition today. It's like that ultrasound that if, you've ever, if you're expecting a child and, you, and you're a parent, and that first time you see that child through an ultrasound, it's amazing because it just reveals the truth of the fact of what you already knew. There's something going on inside of you, and now you know what it looks like. It's amazing. I remember seeing an ultrasound for the first time with my daughter uh, in the womb of my wife, and, and she literally was like a little peanut, shaped like a peanut. It was just amazing. And you realize there is a living creature right there. The word has that effect, that if you let it be the light or the lens upon you, then you will be exposed for the truth of your position, the truth of your condition. And the truth of your potential. So it becomes that way by which we can then watch our lives carefully. He's saying to, to Timothy here, it's like, listen, if you don't let the word of God be taught regularly, then your doctrine will slip. How else could the church come to a place to believe that their salvation was connected to how much they would give to get an indulgence letter? How could they get there to believe such an idea? It's not in Scripture. But did they know that? So you have the Scriptures that teach you that's like, listen, there is nothing that you as a human being can do to justify yourself before God. But rather, by faith in God's work through Christ alone, then you can have trust that you can truly be reconciled back to Him. But without the Word, you don't have that. So that's why he says, Watch your life and your doctrine closely. But then this hits this final point. Because there's not only stuff at stake for you as a teacher, Timothy, but there's stuff at stake for those who listen to you as well. You see, the reality is, James says this in his book, that the teacher is held more accountable than the listener. 
So my standing up here in front of you today actually subjects myself to greater scrutiny. It's not exciting, I have to be honest. I, I don't like being under greater scrutiny, but the reality is that's what it is. Because what I say can affect you or hinder you or can esteem you. So therefore, if, the, if that is true, then let the source of what I'm teaching come from God and not from me. Because in that, there will be life. And that's where, where when you're reading this, imagine if you are Luther and you're reading this where it says be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, to the teaching of that Scripture, and, and to the reading of that Scripture. But you realize you're speaking to a group of people and you're just a wah, 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 wah because they don't know what you're saying. Luther was miserable. He realized this is not right. How can people know their life needs to be under the doctrine of God unless they can read the doctrine themselves? So the word was given to us as a tool to shape us, but it's also given to us as a tool to protect us. If the word of God is not the authority, then who becomes the authority? We do. Mankind, a human being. And if, let's say that you would say, well, we're going to make the pastor the final authority of what is taught in this church. Okay, so then where do I get my authority from? The prevailing idea. You see, you can go down a slippery slope as soon as you say the word of God is not the authority. It then leads to humankind as becoming the authority, no matter what level you speak it at. And when humankind becomes the authority, even if you think it's a singular human being, that human being then is at the mercy of the prevailing idea around him. How else do Christian churches who have the same translations we do land in places that are so anti-biblical and not from the truth of those words? It's because somewhere along the line, they began to teach that scriptures are just, have some good teachings in them, but they're not necessarily authoritative. They're good ideas, but not all of it's relevant. It's antiquated. And so... What we understand is, and they'll say, well, these people were writing to a particular culture that was a long time ago. It doesn't understand the culture of the 21st century. And so they highlight things such as the character of God in regards to his love. And they let the love of God stand as the strength of what they're saying, not the justice and holiness of God. So without the word of God being the authority, you're stuck with me. And then whatever I would think was true, which would quite frankly be affected by what's around me. And that is not good. Let the word of God be the protective guard, not only for me as a teacher, but also for you as a hearer. Let the word of God be what creates the parameters by how we communicate truth to one another. And that spirit and the source of the truth itself. You see, the value of the word of God in our hands is this. We can now know the truth that secures our standing and guides our steps. We can then know who God is and who we are. And we can know how to live because we have the life and teachings found in Jesus Christ. You take the word of God out of the equation 
and now you have no truth and truth becomes elusive. You don't know who God is and you certainly don't know who you are. And you would have no idea what path to take because no paths are lit. Could you imagine? No word. Let's pray. So God, I, I can't fathom what we would even spend our time doing today if we didn't have the word of God. The word that you wrote that came from your breath, from your heart, from your lungs, informed the songs that we sang today. It has informed our teaching. It has informed even our practice of how we worship. It's informed us of who you are so that we know how to best speak to you. We are informed for how you actually want to hear from us. So it gives us the freedom to do so. We are informed also that we can come into your presence and not be afraid. And we're informed about the great news of Jesus Christ and the model of life and living he provides. So we say thank you for the written word that we may have light to know how to live. Thank you, Jesus, for being also the living example of that same truth. May you be honored in our time now as we recall the work of grace on our behalf. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth these words. Just a few decades after the work of the cross, he says this, For I have received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we were taught through scripture that Jesus desired a means by which we would never forget his work. This is that opportunity that when we do this, that we would remember the work of Jesus Christ being sufficient. Not needing to pay up through our own physical resources or having to do something by hard labor to somehow make us justify before God, but rather to celebrate that God did it all through his son, Jesus Christ. So if you are a child of God, where you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you are welcome to participate in this communion table together. All who call upon the name of Jesus Christ are welcome to this table, even if this is not your church. All I'd ask is that you would wait and we'll take of it together. So when Jesus held up the bread, he referenced the connection of the bread to his own body, which was for them. Three and a half years, just shy. He spent time with them, investing in them, loving on them. He had modeled, again, what we find in the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John of Scripture, what life under the submission of the will of God looks like. So we celebrate his life that was in the body that became that second atom for us to see what was intended from the beginning. We do so now taking together.
So here we sit and stand, not having to worry about burnt offerings, sacrifices of animals, but rather just being mindful of a sacrifice that was made to complete all of that 2,000 years ago. We celebrate this new covenant by which we have hope and confidence in the work of the cross. Let's take together in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for being obedient to death, even death on the cross. All because of the love that the Father and you had for us as created ones. We humbly receive that grace, but we also celebrate with joy that we are in your presence today. And we're thankful that you, as the living word, gave us the written word that we would know where we stand and where we are going. We say thank you. In your powerful name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Be mindful this week that we're in anticipation of celebrating the coming of the Lord Jesus, God with us. And on Christmas Eve, we will have three services, 11 a.m., 4.30, and 6. They will be identical services And we would encourage you to invite family and friends to come as the gospel is shared, as always is, when you celebrate the coming of Emmanuel.